Good morning. I am trying to figure out how this works. Jeff is in the Holy Land, and Joe is stuck in Greece. Yeah, we're going to have to lift him up in prayer for that one. Um, Hey, it's a little nerve-wracking. It's been a while since I've been in the pulpit, but it's uh, good to be here. And frankly, I'm comforted by something the Apostle Paul said um, in his first letter to the Corinthian church. He said... When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or with superior wisdom when I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith would not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. I have good reason for fear and trembling this morning, uh, not just because it's uh, public speaking, um, but because God has put on my heart to preach on a topic that is both difficult and in some ways painful for our congregation. So there's something I want to tell you up front about my sermon. I am going to be mentioning and spending some time on the topic of suicide. Now, it's not the main topic of the sermon, but there will be some things that are hard to hear. I want you to know up front that I have spoken personally this week with some of the families that have been touched by this tragedy in our congregation. I've been encouraged by one very courageous woman to speak boldly on the topic. If I did not know about a tragedy in your family and there's still a wound that is sensitive, please hear my apologies up front. I want to speak to this topic in the hope that all who hear will be blessed by God's instruction for us about a certain specific and widespread cause of despair in society. Now, with that happy introduction, let me start by asking each of you a question that every thinking person has to answer at some point in their life. I used to think that this question was for unbelievers, but I've come to understand that it's as relevant to believers as to those who make no profession of faith in Christ. The question is simple, but absolutely basic. The question is this. Is it possible to design or to formulate, or to construct a meaningful existence without God being at the center of our thinking and living? Let me ask that question again. Is it possible for you to piece together a meaningful existence without God being at the center of your thinking and living. 
Now, I've been around the block enough times to know that some of you are thinking, I don't really feel the need to answer that question. You know, I'm happy with my life, my career, my family, my friends, whatever. And frankly, the only reason I'm here is because my wife wants me to be here. Or because my husband wants me to be here. Or because my parents told me I'm going to be here whether I like it or not. Fair enough. But if you feel that way, there's something I want you to think about. About 2,300 years ago, Socrates burned a thought into the mind of Western civilization that refuses to go away. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And what he meant was this. By refusing to address the issue of meaning, you admit that your life is worthless. Now, many have been the philosophers who through the ages have attempted to answer this question. I want to tell you the story about one fairly recent to history. His life's His books are seldom read anymore, and his legend is becoming a faded memory. But in the 1930s and 40s, Ernest Hemingway was a literary idol. Fame came to Hemingway early. When he was still in his 20s, he wrote a book called The Sun Also Rises. It was a book about American expatriates living in Paris. His characters had survived the atrocities of World War I and were no longer interested in money or materialism. But they were content to waste away their days drinking in cafes and doing senseless things like running with the bulls in Pamplona. It was, in Gertrude Stein's words, the lost generation and Hemingway became their voice. Until his death in 1961, Hemingway was seldom out of public view. His technique involved embarking on an adventure and then recapturing the experience in a book. A big game hunt prompted the green hills of Africa, for whom whom the bell tolls, fictionalized the Spanish Civil War, which Hemingway covered as a war correspondent in the 1930s. At one point, Hemingway was the highest paid contributor to Sports Illustrated magazine. Whether it was battles, boxing, bullfights, Hemingway was there, pacing at ringside and celebrating the cult of manhood and danger. When the Allies swept into Paris to liberate the city in World War II, Hemingway, though he was a war correspondent, paraded in with the troops, packing a pistol, and surrounded with an entourage that included a personal cook, a photographer, and a public relations officer, all courtesy of the Army. By the end of the war, Hemingway was world famous. He lived at the Ritz, and owned countries, uh, homes in several countries, 
including a farm in Cuba where he entertained a stream of dignitaries and celebrities from around the world. Rich, famous, good-looking, adventurous, by the standards of this world, Hemingway had it all. But all was not well with Hemingway, whose life and works were based on a philosophy called nihilism. Literally, a belief in nothingness. Hemingway was hospitalized several times for alcoholism, extreme nervous depression, and two suicide attempts. He even endured electric shock treatments in order to solve his problems, but nothing seemed to work. And eventually, all hope waned. In July of 1961, after being released from the Mayo Clinic, Hemingway committed suicide by shooting himself in the forehead with a shotgun. During the funeral, a close friend mused these words. I hope it's finally peaceful for him because nobody ever dreamed of or longed for or experienced less peace than he. He wrote of that longing all his life. Apparently, peace eludes even the most successful men whose life is based on a philosophy of meaninglessness. Though Hemingway's life is fading into memory, the philosophy behind his work is not, because we still live in a society that is literally dying for a sense of meaning. We live in a generation that's paralyzed by the fear that no such meaning even exists. Atheist philosopher and writer John Paul Sartre has inspired a generation of writers that bring its students to a philosophy that says the only question that a thinking man has to answer is whether or not to commit suicide. Now, I know that many of you are extremely uncomfortable right now. We need to be. The reality is that the fears of meaninglessness, loneliness, and despair defines our times. Now, I want to clarify something. When I speak of despair, I am not speaking about the kind of desperate sadness that comes along with broken dreams. That is understandable. And when I speak of loneliness, I'm not talking about the kind of loneliness that a widow or a single person might feel, which is the longing for human companionship. That's normal. What I'm talking about is a cosmic loneliness and a cosmic despair. Entrenched in a soul that feels alone and adrift in a vast, impersonal universe. 
The angst of cosmic loneliness does not sit well with the human soul. Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal said there is a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. The human soul is simply not satisfied with thoughts of the black, empty void of space. Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous 19th century atheist who got this kicked off, made perhaps the most outlandish claim ever made about God. And most of you know what it is. Nietzsche claimed that God is dead. But do you know how he died? Nietzsche claimed that we murdered him. And you know what the weapon was? Indifference. Now, what Nietzsche was claiming, of course, was not that we actually killed God, but that he's as good as dead because we treat him as though he were dead. We consider him irrelevant. And we go on with our lives without the slightest thought or reflection upon him. But Nietzsche knew that such a dismal view of God presented some serious problems. And he mused these disturbing thoughts. We are all his killers, he said. But how could we do this? How could we swallow up the sea? Who gave us a sponge big enough to wipe away the entire horizon. And what will we do now that the earth is set loose from its sun? These are chilling questions about the meaninglessness of life outside the framework of God. The themes of meaninglessness and cosmic loneliness reach everywhere into pop culture, including the area of music. We're going to listen to a sound clip right now from an album that holds a special place in pop culture. This album appeared on Billboard magazine's top 100 list every week for 25 years. There is no other album in any category that even comes close to that. What's the significance? The message in this song continues to resonate in the hearts of millions of people. And if we're honest, it may also arouse some uncomfortable feelings in our own hearts. Listen carefully to the words of this song.
Does the Bible, a book about God, talk about this kind of fear of meaninglessness, cosmic loneliness, and despair? Surprisingly, I think there's one book in the Bible that is almost singular in its focus on this kind of fear. The book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible, turn with me in it to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're not sure where it is, you can open up your Bible to the middle. That'll be the book of Psalms. After the book of Psalms is the book of Proverbs. After Proverbs is Ecclesiastes. And let's look at the words of King Solomon, who 30 centuries ago echoed the same themes popularized by contemporary philosophers. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And I'm going to read at some length and see if you can follow along if you don't have your Bibles. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Is that really a message from the Bible? That everything, no matter how wide or how deep we look, is meaningless? One thing that's certain from this opening verse, the idea that everything is utterly meaningless is not anything new, but has deep roots in the history of man. Verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. What does Solomon mean when he says there's nothing new? What about the internet and the mobile phone? He certainly never saw either of those things. But he did say, the eye never has enough of seeing or the ear its fill of hearing. And that certainly applies to the internet and mobile phone. Endless looking and endless talking. You know, I thought I saw something new. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, my 11-year-old daughter was sitting on her bed 
texting her friend, who was sitting on the same bed. (laughs) That was new. But our two girls sitting on the bed chatting, really anything new. And what are people talking about anyway? Their friends, their families, their careers, what they have, what they want. What's new about that? You know, the details might be different, but in the grand scheme of things, it's always the same. Endless pursuit of more and better. Solomon is right. There's nothing new under the sun. I, the teacher, was king over Jerusalem in Israel. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all the things that are done under heaven. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Have you ever thought about the imagery of chasing the wind? When I was the father of two young children, I could testify how difficult it was to chase something you could see. But to chase the wind, you can't even see it. All you can see is maybe the rustling of leaves or the bending of the grass. Its course is ever-changing. You don't know where it's coming or where it's going. And what would you do even if you could chase it? There's nothing to hold on to once you chased it down. To chase the wind is complete nonsense. No wonder man is frustrated under the sun. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also to the understanding of madness and folly. But I learned that this too was a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I thought in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure to see what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. Sure, Solomon. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. 
I amass silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers, and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of men. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what, was, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It is perhaps the saddest truth that men still believe in their vain conceit that somehow the successful accumulation of material possessions or the successful accumulation of sensual experiences will somehow bring meaning and happiness to life. Solomon is warning us that even though the coffers are filled to overflowing and even if the senses are filled to overflowing, nothing is gained under the sun. I did see that wisdom is better than folly. Just as light is better than darkness. At least the wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. And this passage from Ecclesiastes is just the introduction to 12 chapters of sobering analysis of life under heaven. Solomon uses the phrases under the sun and under heaven over and over again. What do these phrases mean? 
What's their significance? I started this sermon by asking you a question. Is it possible to design or to formulate or to construct a meaningful existence outside the framework of God? Without God being at the center of our thinking and living. To live life under heaven. To live life under the sun. Means to live your life outside the framework of God. It means to take into account the entire physical realm but none of the spiritual realm. But what a great mistake to make. Because God and the things of God exist and have their meaning in the spiritual dimension. Where does God live? Psalm 115 says, The highest heavens belong to God. If we fail to find Him, it's not because He's hidden from our view, but because we never use our spiritual eyes to look beyond the sun. Nothing is more ungodly than the anxious fears of meaninglessness and cosmic despair. Because they are, in reality, godlessness. To think of life under heaven without any reference to God, without any knowledge of God, without any thought of God, is a guaranteed formula for despair. So what's the solution? The answer may surprise you. As a solution to the problems of a shallow, worldly perspective, Solomon presents a completely different kind of fear. He puts it this way, at the end of Ecclesiastes. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. After summing up all the philosophies of men and exploring every conceivable worldly notion that might provide a satisfying answer to the meaning of life, Solomon pleads his case with a direct assertion that God has to be at the center of our thinking and living if we are to assign meaning to life. And furthermore, he asserts that the fear of him plays the central role. Here's his complete analysis. 
fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Now, you'll notice in the NIV, which is up there, that the word duty is included in brackets. That means that the word does not appear in the original language. It's an insertion by the translators to give, in hope, to give more meaning or a more clear meaning to the passage. But I want to suggest that you leave it out altogether. In that way, the, re, the verse reads, For this is the whole of man. Not the whole duty of man. Or in other words, it's the whole essence of man. Fearing God and keeping His commandments is at the heart of what it means to be human. Now some of you are probably thinking, boy, that sounds awfully Old Testament. Fear God and keep His commandments? I thought we were supposed to love God and live by faith. That's exactly what Solomon means. Let me explain. Fearing God means to love Him. But, to love Him in a way that acknowledges that He is the Creator and the Ruler of everything. It means to love Him, but to love Him in a way that acknowledges His holiness and His goodness. Even when it seems otherwise. Especially when it seems otherwise. It means to love Him in a way that acknowledges that He's proven His love for us and that He deserves our love. And to love Him in a way that says it's foolish. Even dangerously foolish not to love Him in the way He deserves. And keeping His commandments, that means to live by faith. Look, you don't even come close to keeping God's commandments in any way that is going to earn you salvation. Keeping His commandments is an acknowledgement from us that we trust Him. It's an expression of our faith that He knows what's best for us and that He wants to bless us. Our obedience says to God, You made me 
And you made this world. And you know better how it works than I do. And so I'm going to make your ways my ways. I'm going to make your thoughts my thoughts. What does fearing God and keeping His commandments mean in practical terms for us today? So many things, but I'm going to close with two simple comments. First of all, you're in need of a Savior. You do not keep God's commandments in any way that's acceptable. And you need somebody who can pay the penalty for your sin and credit your account with righteousness. There's only one man who can do that for you, and his name is Jesus Christ. He loves you more deeply than you will ever know. You must accept Christ as your Savior without hesitation and without qualification. Jesus Christ is God's designated solution both to the problems of meaninglessness and judgment. Secondly, you must allow Christ to be your Lord, which means to let Him be the center of your thinking and your living. How does the Apostle Paul put it? He said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, whether you work or whether you play, whether you study, whether you teach, whether you, avow, whether you evangelize, whether you serve, whether you give, whether you encourage, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And the God of glory will give you meaning and peace and rest and joy out of a heart overflowing with love.